Good morning, everyone. It's often difficult with familiar parables to recover the shock that would have been there to the first listeners, to Jesus' audience in Palestine in the first century. A few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the shock there is not that the Samaritan is good. It's that the good people of the time, the, the worthy Jews, are the ones who fall down, who don't look after the wounded man. The good man, the man who does the right thing, is somebody who Jesus' audience would have seen as despised, racially inferior. And again in this parable, Jesus starts off the parable trying to shock his audience. And he's shocked by the people he chooses. Now for us today, because the stories have become so familiar, because the stories of the Bible have entered our very language and consciousness, the shocking nature of what a difference between a Pharisee and a tax collector is perhaps lost. So I think the first thing we need to do is try and recover that. Jesus' listeners, when they're told there's a Pharisee and a tax collector, would have had an instant image of a very good man and a very bad man. Let's be clear, the Pharisee is a good man. The Pharisees were model Jewish citizens. They tried very hard to keep all the Jewish law. If we put that in a modern context, the Pharisees are the people we'd like to be. They would be active members of the church. They would be regular and committed givers to charity. They would give their time, not just their money. And they would be very responsible, law-abiding citizens. They probably wouldn't speed even when there wasn't a speed camera. They are good people. Jesus tells us elsewhere, our righteousness must even exceed that of the Pharisees. They were the gold standard. So the Pharisee is a good guy in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the listeners. Tax collector is a very bad man. And again, I don't think this quite captures it today. We have pictures of you know, the Inland Revenue, Hector in the bowler hat, asking us to get our tax return in. Yes, maybe a visit from the VAT man isn't to be welcomed if you run a small business, but tax collectors as the vision of all that is evil doesn't quite do it for us today. Perhaps we need to think a little bit more about what a tax collector was in the first century A.D., in the Roman Empire under Tiberius Caesar. The tax collector, or publicani, as they were called, hence the tax collector and the public, hence the Pharisee and the publican, as this um, parable is known in older translators. Nothing to do with the man who pulls pints. Publicani, they were basically the people who ran the machinery of the government in the Roman Empire. They were responsible for putting up public buildings. They were responsible for supplying the legions with food and weapons and other things they needed. 
and they were responsible for collecting the taxes that paid for all of that. So, like a modern civil servant, you might think, what's so wicked about that? Well, they weren't civil servants. They weren't employees of the Roman state. Rather, the Romans put all this out to contract, and you bid. You bid to be a publicani, and what you did is you said, I will raise this much money in return for being allowed to collect the taxes in this region. And the person who said he could raise the most money won the contract. What you then did, if you were publicani, having successfully secured one of these contracts, they usually ran for five years, by the way, which you then proceeded to get as rich as you could, as quickly as you could. And the ways they usually went about this, firstly, when you were bidding for the contract, you made it, you tried to downplay how rich the profits was. You know, it really, you know, the crops aren't what they were, the towns are going to rack and ruin, you know, we really aren't going to get that much money. So you played down as much as you could how much you were going to be able to raise. Obviously, you had to, enough to win the contract. Secondly, once you've got the contract, remember you pay up front. You pay the whole amount you're going to collect in taxes over five years up front. So you've got a big incentive to go and collect the money, and that's what you do. You collect as much as you can, as quickly as you can. But under the Roman system, you had an even bigger incentive. Anything you collected over and above what you promised to the Roman state, you got to keep for yourself. So you really, you squeezed the people as much as you could. And you knew where they lived. It wasn't that difficult. Finally, you were a subcontract. You, you were responsible for supplying the legions and building the buildings. Which meant anybody who supplied the Roman state came through you. And if they wanted the contracts, they had to see you right. Nice filly you've got, I hear. Oh, it's free. Would I like to come and stay? You're too kind. And that was just the start of it. These guys, in our terms, were a cross between a dodgy financier, the worst kind of Russian oligarch, and a mafia don. You did not mess with a tax collector, not if you knew what was good for you. There is no sin this man has not committed. He is wicked. So, we come in. It's quite clear who's going to be justified before God. The epitome of the good man, the Pharisee, or the epitome of evil, the wicked man, the tax collector. Well, let's proceed with the story and see what happens. The Pharisee comes into the temple. How does he pray? Well, he leads off by telling God how wonderful he is. Not God, but him, the Pharisee. And just in case God might have temporarily overlooked them, he lists his good works. He reminds God of all the good he's done for God. He doesn't actually thank God for anything other than that he's so good. And not like other evildoers. And particularly not like the tax collector. And as he prays, he focuses on what he hasn't done, the sins he hasn't committed. He's not a robber. He's not an adulterer. 
is he really without sin? Is he really as good as he thinks he is? In Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells us in chapter 12, when he's asked to summarize the law, summarize the commandments, he says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So how does the Pharisee measure up against this test? Well, there is a person he loves with all his mind, with all his soul, and with all his heart and all his strength. It's himself. And as for his neighbor, the tax collector, praying alongside him, he thanks God he's not like him. So not much love there, and not much humility either. And finally, and very significantly, the Pharisee doesn't actually ask God for anything. He's confident, rather, that God owes him for all the good works he's done. So that's how the good man prays. Now let's come on to the wicked man, the very wicked man, the tax collector. He approaches God humbly. He stands at a distance. He doesn't stand in the center of the temple where he can be seen. And he does not lock up towards heaven. By his behavior, he demonstrates that he both loves and fears God. And you might well say he's got a lot to fear God for. Secondly, he doesn't list his faults. He doesn't dwell on the many sins he's committed. He knows that God knows that already. He doesn't need to tell God. But equally, he doesn't try to excuse himself. He doesn't try to come up with good things he's done as well. Yes, well, I may have fiddled a few things, and yes, that, you know, I did rub a couple of people out, but, you know, I'm kind to animals, and I love my mum. No, he, he just says he's a sinner. And the other significant thing is he asks God for something. He asks for mercy. He humbles himself before God. So, who is justified? Justified is the word used in the Bible to be put in a right relationship with God, to, be put, to have the fall reversed, to be back with God as an individual. So who's justified, the outwardly good man or the outwardly wicked man? Well, it doesn't matter that the Pharisee has genuinely done so many good things. He has. He has behaved well. But what matters is how they approach God. The Pharisee fundamentally approaches God, believing that forgiveness from God can be earned by the actions of man, by the actions of the Pharisee himself. He can work his way to God. He can work his way into heaven. And he's approaching God in the mode of a man about to settle a debt. Here's what I've done. 
Now give me my reward. He doesn't seem able to see, cannot see, that he cannot do enough. He can never do enough. It is not possible to do enough by his own efforts to earn God's forgiveness. But I think it goes more than that. I don't think the Pharisee actually wants to be justified. He's actually quite happy with how he is. He's happy with what he's done and achieved in his own life, by his own efforts, on earth. He doesn't need God to interfere with his love for himself. He wants nothing from God, and therefore God cannot give him anything. God cannot give him what he does not seek. He has his reward here on earth in this life. God cannot give him anything more. The tax collector knows, on the other hand, that he's a sinner and that he requires repentance. He has come, the sins, as it says in the old prayer book, the burden of them is intolerable. The remembrance of them is grievous. They weigh him down. He has come to repent. And he doesn't try and make excuses. He doesn't try and bargain with God. He doesn't say, okay, God, I've been a bad man, but I'm going to be good in the future. So now you can owe it to me. He just throws himself on God's mercy. He knows that he is owed nothing by God. And that he can do nothing through his own efforts to put things right. He knows that forgiveness can only be given by God through God's grace. And he, the wicked man, is the one who is justified. God who owes him nothing willingly gives him everything. So what does this teach us? Firstly, that being put in a right relationship with God is not something we can earn, not something God will owe us if we do the right actions. We can't work our way to it. There is no celestial weighing machine where we put our good deeds here, our bad deeds here, see how they measure up. That's not how it works. If that were how it works, we would all be condemned. None of us could ever be good enough. But secondly, if we recognize that, if we recognize our sins, if we confess them, if we ask for God's mercy, forgiveness will be granted freely, however wicked we have been, even if we are as wicked as the tax collector, the most wicked man of his times. God will freely forgive us. So does this mean that good works don't matter, that we shouldn't be good? What's the point of being good? Some people have said that from this parable. No, it doesn't mean that. We're told elsewhere that we must love our neighbors as ourselves and love God. But good works do not earn us our way into heaven. They're our response to the gift that God has given us. They are, if you will, our thank you letter. They are the way that we show our gratitude to God for the gift God has freely given us. So yes, we should be good, but not to earn heaven. Heaven has been earned for us by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Good works is how we respond in faith to show our gratitude for what has been done for us. 
And there's further good news. If we ask for God's mercy, he will help us in being good. The commandments which seem so forbidding and so hard to keep in our own strength, if we ask for God's support and help, become not commandments but promises. That is how we will behave. Not all the time, of course, we're fallen. We have to keep returning and repenting and keep asking for God's help. But with God's help, we can get there. So in conclusion, how should we apply this parable in our own life? Firstly, we must remember God does not owe us anything. When we pray, therefore, that we should not present a list of our virtues to God, seeking our reward. God longs to forgive us, but he can only forgive us if we ask him to and ask for his mercy. Therefore, when we pray, we must focus not on our strengths, but our weaknesses. And I think here there's a big problem for all of us. It's very easy, actually, to think of the sins we haven't committed. Don't think I've murdered anyone recently. Haven't done a bank job. And, of course, those are serious sins. You get sent to prison for those. So, you know, I've not done anything too bad. Doesn't work like that in God's universe. Yes, those are sins. And if any of you here have committed them, you should indeed be confessing them. But there are other sins that we all commit all the time. Envy, jealousy, anger, pride. And those are just as much sins in God's eyes as doing a bank job. We all need repentance and forgiveness. And we can't achieve that on our own. We must ask God for help. And not like the Pharisee, we must not trust in our own resources. But if we ask for that help, God will not just forgive us for the past. But through his spirit, he'll help us to do better in the future. So finally, let us remember, as we pray, let us remember with the tax collector that God owes us nothing, but longs to give us everything.